I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A toddler girl's violent abduction would lead one woman on an ongoing quest to end child abuse and neglect. This is the Lori Poland story. Morning, Amy. Hey, Megan. How are you? I think we're both in good spirits as the semester is almost over. I think we're both very happy. (laughs) Am I right? Yes. You know, it's always good to recharge. And we're both taking big trips this summer, which means we're going to be apart for a while. But you're going to Japan with a class, correct? I am. I will be gone for two weeks. A little nervous about that. Yeah. But excited. It's a long trip. And then as soon as you come back, I leave and I'm going to Argentina with my friend Michelle for our joint birthdays. Yeah, I think we both have pretty awesome trips coming up. Yeah, but I'm still shocked that I agreed to an 11 hour plane ride. Um, Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what, Michelle plied me with some wine and got me to like agree. So, you know, I will miss you, though. We won't see each other for a month. But of course, when you come back, we're going to schedule our annual camping trip and other fun events. Plus, we have a lot of recording to do, don't we? We sure do. So today's episode was suggested by Aaron M., a patron and a veteran. Aaron, we would like to thank you for this suggestion and even more so for your service to our country and really to all of us. And Amy, while today's case uncovers a truly horrifying act of violence, this is also a story of survival, perseverance, and hope. I was truly inspired by Lori Poland's story, and I hope the rest of our listeners will be as well. 
Born to parents Richard and Diane Poland, three-year-old Lori and her five-year-old brother were playing in the front yard of their home in Sheridan, Colorado, on the day of events we're talking about. Now, just for reference, Sheridan, Colorado is about 20 minutes away from Denver, so it's one of the suburbs outside. It was a sunny August day in 1983, and their father, Richard, had taken off from work that day to paint the outside of the house. Lori's mother, Diane, however, was at work, so it was just Richard and the two small children at home. Now, it was a beautiful summer day, Amy, and all of the other kids and a lot of adults were out in their yards soaking up the sun, you know, just enjoying the weather. According to Lori, she and her brother had an ice pop earlier, but she or her brother both had suckered her father into saying that they could have a second one. So her father went into the house for just a minute, and according to him, he could see Lori and her brother you know, through the windows until he turned around to get those ice pops out of the freezer. And that's when the worst happened. A stranger in a car stopped in front of Lori's house, opened the passenger door and asked if Lori wanted some candy. What? This reminds me of like those stranger danger stories from the 80s and the 90s that ex- like we don't hear about them as much today, but we w- I would hear about these a lot as a child. This is the quintessential case for which we were taught stranger danger. So Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. And Lori, at this time, being a three-year-old who loves candy, of course said yes. And so she quickly got in the car with the strange man, but candy was not what she found. And even before she got into the car, the stranger made her take her pants off and leave them on the sidewalk. A shocking detail. Do you make any sense of that? I mean, I understand the reason why this type of offender would want her to have clothing removed, but in that yes. very instant on the sidewalk while he's trying to rush her in the car, no. Um, that's that's a strange detail to this case. Unfortunately for Lori, the stranger you know, sped away and drove her to an old abandoned outhouse off a highway about 20 miles west of Denver, where this man physically and sexually abused three-year-old Lori for hours. Exactly how long is unknown. And we're not going to cover any of the details of the particulars because I'm sure we all understand the implications here. She was severely abused. When he was done, and this is something I really need you to brace yourself for, he dropped Lori down a 15-foot hole that had chemicals and human waste at the bottom of it and left her there to die. Oh, wow. I... I'm speechless. I've never heard this case before. And neither had I, to be honest. And yes, I was speechless when I read this as well. Remember, this was an outhouse. So essentially, he dropped her in a toilet to die. Meanwhile, Lori's father was frantic, having come out of the house after literally only a minute or two and unable to find his daughter. His son was there. He was not taken. Did his son say that he saw what happened? I'm not sure that he did, but others did. So okay. uh, the father looked everywhere and the son was saying he, did, he didn't see Lori. You know, he was playing. But, you know, Lori's father was asking neighbors, um, you know, running around frantically. And he realized pretty quickly that Lori was nowhere to be found. It's not like she wandered off into a neighbor's yard. She was gone. This timing is so tight. I'm, I'm assuming we'll get into this, but he was staking this home out. It appeared that he had been staking the neighborhood out, not necessarily the home. I don't think Lori was actually singled out. I think the Mm -hmm. general area and the children in the area were. And I'll discuss that later, but it's a good question. Okay. Richard Poland called his wife and then the police who arrived at the Poland residence to investigate quickly. 
Now, this is before the era of social media or even the internet, really. Remember, it's 1983, and there weren't even Amber Alerts yet. So solving this case really was going to have to come down to some old-school police work. And honestly, I'm really impressed with what they were able to do in this case. They canvassed the neighborhood, and as it turned out, there were eyewitnesses to Lori's abduction by several of the neighbors. Remember, as I said, everyone was out. One in particular was able to provide police with a description of the abductor's car, which he described as, quote, a tannish brown or possible orange Datsun with black block letters Datsun on the bottom half of the car. While a second neighbor said that she observed an orange Datsun with a black vinyl top, black letters on the bottom of the car, and a license plate consisting of the letters ADC or ADV with three numbers, one of them being a two. Jeez. I mean, that's amazing that the neighbor was able to get that information, but that that still doesn't give police that much to focus on. Oh, I, I disagree. I think that's a great start. Um, yeah. The car is pretty kind of unique, and with license plate numbers. Yeah, but only having, what, four out of seven, did you say? But you can start narrowing it down. Yeah, um, At yeah, least, true. you know, in the area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a better start than, you know, abductors who say... I saw a black Camry or something. This is specific information. Did anyone give a description of the person driving the car? Hold that thought. Okay. Detectives broadcast the vehicle's description to the public, hoping that a car this distinct would be noticed by someone. There were also a few children, just so you know, who witnessed the event and who were able to describe the vehicle in general, but also witnessed Lori getting into the car with the man. Amy, I would like to point out, this is a very bold kidnapping. (laughs) Daytime Mm -hmm. in the middle of the neighborhood with people around. You had just asked me about whether or not there was a description of the man. Well, there were reports by other neighborhood children that they had been propositioned by a stranger who'd offered them candy to get in his car just days before. And one of their fathers had seen the man and was able to describe him for police in general. So he described him as, you know, they got a sketch artist and he described him as a white male, about five foot eight, 155 pounds or so with dirty brown looking hair. So it's a general description, but there is a description. And as I said, there was no social media, but Diane and Richard took to the news um, very quickly where they pleaded and cried for whoever took Lori to bring her back. It's a very hard video to watch. Diane's crying and she keeps saying how scared she knows Lori must be. It's an agonizing one, but the media took to the story right away, which was good in this case because they needed the media coverage. And also, the community quickly mobilized, posting flyers everywhere and holding searches immediately for Lori. Understandably, everybody in the community was terrified, but police kept plodding away on their leads, coming even closer to finding Lori Poland's abductor. Now, as I said, they released the eyewitness descriptions of the vehicle and the suspect to the public. And they got a tip, a good tip, from an older woman. She'd seen the news story and the car. In fact, she'd even written down the full license plate number. Um, Do you know why she did that? Was she suspicious? She was suspicious. This was a car in her neighborhood. um, And I believe her granddaughter was there um, or around. And she felt that the car was out of place. Something felt wrong to her. Good for her. She knew enough to write it down. You know, her instincts kicked in, Mm -hmm. which is great. You know, if you see something, say something um, or, you know, write it down and call it in. So with this wonderful tip and information, the investigators were able to track the vehicle by its plate. And it came back to the ownership of a man named Robert Paul Fioret. 
And when detectives arrived at his home, there in the driveway was an orange-brown Datsun with a black vinyl top and the license plate number ADV627. Mm-hmm. Remember, the eyewitness nailed it. it, had the ADV and a two in it. Yep. Pretty impressive. I read and watched a few different accounts of this story. It doesn't have as much coverage, uh, as you probably know, as other famous cases, but it appears that the police may have not made contact with him immediately, meaning that they went to his house and he wasn't home. So they did make contact with his mother and they interviewed her. She was willing to give a little information about her son. She said that he had some trouble when he was younger and maybe she didn't do the best job to fix it. Not quite specific, um, but she said that he was a good man now. Investigators were obviously very interested in whatever trouble that had been, but the real pressing question related to Lori. When the police were able to make contact with Therette, they explained very plainly that they were investigating the abduction of Lori Poland and needed to look around his property and his house. And Robert Paul obliged. After a search of the property, Lori was nowhere to be found. And this really concerned the police because they, you know, they were hoping that they would get there and they would find her. Mm-hmm. As we know from other cases we've covered, the longer someone is missing, the less chance there is that the victim, Mm -hmm. you know, will be found alive. So investigators were really, you know, they were up against the clock. But Amy, there was another stroke of luck in this case, an unbelievable one. A bird watching couple driving along a desolate highway needed a bathroom break. And so they stopped at what seemed to be an old outhouse along the side of the road. Oh, my goodness. And when they stopped, they could not believe what they heard. They heard a child's cries for help coming from the bottom of this hole. I just got the chills. I, wow. It's really shocking. Can you imagine also being this couple and hearing this on both ends? So when the, the couple started talking to her, you know, asking her what she was doing in there. Yeah. Poor Lori said, I live here. What? She thought that was where she had to live now, that that was going to be her new home. How long, how much time has passed? She had been down there for three and a half days. What? And she's, oh my goodness. Okay. Um, So I'm assuming they don't have cell phones, so they need to quickly find help. They did. And they found, they were able to contact authorities quickly because they couldn't get, they didn't have a way either. I'm sure they immediately wanted to get her. This is a 15 foot hole. They didn't have a way to get her out. However, they made contact. First responders arrived very quickly and a firefighter was harnessed and lowered down into the hole where he was able to lift Lori out. But Amy, she was in very bad shape. Let's understand, she had not had food or water for over three days. She had been laying in feces and chemicals for, like I said, three and a half days. This is the most awful conditions we can imagine. I'm assuming... The water level wasn't so high that drowning was a risk. Like, was she able to stand? That's a great question. Here's what she did. And this is incredible because she was so young. She's three years old. She realized that she was in a bad situation and was somehow able to get on top of like a raised object in the ground. It was a mound of some materials of sort. Um, I don't know what it was, if it was wood, you know, who knows what it was. But she was able to get herself on the mound so that she wasn't lying directly in the waist. Smart enough at three to do that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the mound wasn't tall enough, though. So her legs and feet were immersed in the chemical refuse for over 72 hours. 
and they became badly infected, running black all the way up both of her legs. Now, this may have been sepsis too, but the term was never used when describing her conditions, just to be clear. It was always a really bad infection. It ran up her limbs. Um, Her situation was so bad, honestly, Amy, that upon her arrival at the hospital, doctors thought that they were going to have to amputate her legs as her organs were also failing from this spreading infection. But miraculously, Lori began healing almost immediately and got better quicker than they had even thought possible. Her organs restoring and amputation was not necessary after all. Lori ended up making a full physical recovery. I'm assuming it didn't take them very long to arrest the person responsible for this. That's correct. They had the suspect, Robert Paul Theret, in custody already. And they created a lineup as well um, and asked Lori if she could identify her attacker. Now, remember, I said that she made a physical recovery. But at this point, we're talking about, you know, the emotional trauma and distress of a three-year-old who probably can't comprehend what just happened to her. And so... So horrifically traumatized, Lori was able to identify her attacker in the lineup. And she had a pretty visceral react, knowing it was him pointing, backing up. And they said it was quick and pretty immediate. Again, this is unbelievable, Amy, because we talk about eyewitness identifications, how hard they are, and especially for children and a child who's been severely traumatized. It's nothing short of amazing. Not only that, but police had hair samples from Robert Paul's car that matched Lori Polin. But to be clear, there's no mention of DNA in this case, so I suspect it predated regular collection because it was 1983. I'm sure you probably teach a little bit about this, but do you remember the first time DNA was really used in a criminal court case? Sometime around 1985-86 in England, is that right? That is absolutely correct. It was used to exonerate one innocent man, but then used to implicate and correctly identify one very dangerous serial repeat offender. So, you know, I digress a little bit, but I just wanted to give you the context or the the timeline here. So this should have seemed like a slam dunk case. You have hair samples, eyewitnesses, and Lori was able to name her attacker. But her attacker had an alibi. Robert Paul was married at that time. They were young. He was 21 years old. And his wife said that they were at home together when Lori was abducted. You know, I'm always... Very hesitant. I w- if it was just the eyewitness, I don't think I would be so sure of this man's guilt. But it sounds like the car is pretty strong evidence. The hair. Is he saying that somebody took his car? Because I don't think we could deny that it was his car that was used in the abduction. I don't know if that was. <laughs> I don't think that was his excuse, to be honest. Um, okay. Either way, the alibi given by a family member usually doesn't hold as much weight. I would imagine that what um, his wife maybe said, too, is that she was together in the car, like they were together in the car and then possibly home together. Although I don't know exactly what she said, but I can tell you that she stuck to her alibi. She held fast on that one. And you're right. You have to be um, suspicious of this. But this is also 1983 before DNA and some other advances. We don't have technology and surveillance and other things. And the case got more complicated, too, when Robert Paul's defense attorney filed motions to exclude trial evidence because of illegal search, seizure and failure to Mirandize. All of these became issues at various times throughout. Remember, he allowed them into their home, but they were saying that search was coercive. 
They brought him in for questioning at times, but said he wasn't properly Mirandized. And so it got very, very complicated. And I can tell you that the result was mixed because the judge did find that some of the evidence was admissible and others were not because of these substantial claims. So again, this was very complicated with some evidence and exclusion, um, but some included with the question about the alibi. Now we get to the big question here. What's going to happen? Is he going to be offered a plea or is this case going to go to trial? I would imagine it goes to trial if he's claiming innocence. You would think so. But and I got to tell you, with all the charges against him that he was facing, the sexual abuse charges, um, abduction, uh, you know, and there were several others. He was facing a total of about 48 years in prison, just to keep that in mind. However, he did take a plea. He was offered a plea and he negotiated. So in return for the guilty plea, the charges of kidnapping, child abuse and committing a crime of violence were dropped. Yes, you look shocked and you should be. I think this is shocking, right? I think this is not a case that I, I can't even imagine how furious the family was. Okay, so in the end, he agreed to plead guilty to the crime of sexual assault in exchange for a prison term of 10 years. That's down from 48 years. I'm very confused. I'm assuming... That the prosecutor, well, as far as I know, the prosecutor usually works with the victim's family before offering a plea deal. I cannot imagine that her family was okay with this type of deal. No, I don't think they were. And you know what's interesting? I've read different accounts of this story. And again, not as publicized as others, but it seemed that the judge intervened and was very strongly suggesting to the prosecutor to offer the deal. I think this deal was more proffered by the judge than it was by the prosecutor. I'm shocked, and I hope that you're going to tell me that this man spent longer than 10 years behind bars. What I'm going to tell you is that he was released after six years with good behavior. Six years. So he was in his late 20s when he was released from prison, even after the horrific act. Right. Okay. So we're definitely going to discuss, obviously, later on whether we think this is justice. But in the meantime, what about Lori? How does a toddler come back from something like this? As I said, Lori did make a full physical recovery, but she was left with severe PTSD, depression, anxiety, and emotional trauma. Lori's parents placed her in an intensive counseling and care program within two weeks of her abduction, which as an adult, Lori says, was pivotal to her recovery. Her doctor, Richard Krugman, a renowned pediatrician specialized in treating children who were abused, and so he helped Lori to recover. But he also had to help her recall some of these painful memories so that she could provide information to the police. So remember that ID that we talked about that she made? Well, you know, it was really through her therapy sessions, and she credits Dr. Krugman and his style, that she was able to recall this information and recall it and not experience, it was traumatizing, but to experience it in a way that also helped her to recover. It's important to note here, too, that, you know, you had mentioned Lori's family and they were incredibly traumatized by this event. And later in life, Lori described how much pain this awful incident caused her whole family. You know, it's not just one person. There's the ripple effect. We talk about this in other cases, the secondary victimization and all like the effect that this has on a whole family. The guilt the father must have felt. Do you know if the marriage survived this type of trauma? I I think it did. I can't say for sure, but I think it did. Um, The parents were also very grateful to have her back, even though there was a long struggle here. But there was also so much good that came from this tragedy. 
Lori went on to become a licensed therapist specializing in treating children who have suffered extreme trauma. And through her work, she became an advocate for other children, teaming up with her treating doctor, remember Dr. Krugman, to launch ENDCAN, which is an acronym that stands for End Child Abuse and Neglect. So I looked into NCAN and I, I saw her. She's done interviews. Um, she did an interview. One of the ones I watched was a segment on the Megyn Kelly show. And she's done a couple other podcasts, you know, not an incredible amount, but I wanted to hear what her goals were and, and what she does. Um, the goals first of NCAN are to change the conversation from viewing child abuse as a criminal justice issue or rather just a criminal justice issue but looking at violent trauma in children as a health issue because of, uh, you know, the real physical and mental health consequences of abuse. So, you know, she wants to or they want to transition this as, you know, as we've heard before with criminal justice issues, make them public health crises as well or issues. Mm-hmm. Secondly, NCAN gains funding and puts it towards all possible avenues that move research in the consequences of childhood abuse. But probably most importantly, when asked if she ever found justice, and I think it refers to that sentence, that light sentence that he got, Lori said that her life's not about that anymore. She said, for me, it's not about justice. It's about being impactful and healing. Part of this work she does, Amy, is that she works with sex offenders as part of her impact. And she says that, you know, she sat in a room with 250 sex offenders And what she hears from them is that so many of them were abused as children themselves and they couldn't cope or they didn't feel like they mattered. And so Lori focuses uh, her work on healing those offenders so they won't go on to offend again. In fact, Lori found out that her own abuser um, was abused as a very young child as well. Remember I said that he experienced something traumatic? Yep. Apparently he was abused for some time at the age three years old and on, although we don't know who his abuser was. So while we don't know much about his trauma, uh, Lori described a cycle of violence when this trauma isn't, you know, treated or dealt with. And that's her mission now to help treat those who've been abused. So she's an incredible role model and reminds us that justice doesn't always happen in the criminal justice system as we hope. I need to know more about her, about the offender. Do you know what he ended up doing? I have to say, uh, we don't know very much about his background at all, other than he did, he experienced some type of trauma. He had somewhat of a troubled childhood, I guess, with his mother, but it did not appear that he had any real criminal history prior to this. But what about after he was released? Yeah, I looked that up as well, um, and I couldn't find any um, evidence that he reoffended significantly. I think I saw that he might have had one very small technical violation, but after that, He's a registered sex offender, I believe, um, but I couldn't find any evidence that he reoffended. Do you think it's Do you think it's possible that he was innocent? No. Okay. I don't think it's possible that he was innocent. Um, I think it's possible that he offended again and didn't get caught. I think it's possible that you know the prison was a deterrent for him, one of the rare offenders. But no, I don't think he was innocent by any means. I think he was guilty. So. Normally, at this point, too, when we get to the end, we we talk about criminological theory, right? Uh, I'm not going to spend that much time talking about theory today because I think it would be a lot of speculation. You know, we we do know that Paul Theret had a trauma as a child. Lori, and there's one other source that I saw that said he was definitely a victim of abuse. There's no doubt that he was a sexual predator. Had he not been caught and incarcerated, I suspect he absolutely would have repeated his crimes. He was young. Remember, he was just 21 years old when he abducted Lori. 
And think about how brazen the abduction was out there in the, you know, daylight. Had he gotten away with that, I have no doubt that he would have gone on to become a repeat offender. And let's be clear here, though, Amy, not all victims become perpetrators by any stretch. But when we have severe victimization left untreated, it's very possible for abuse to become cyclical. So just again, not all victims go on to offend. But that being said, the most serious sex offenders often have histories of sexual abuse. You know, we see this oftentimes, especially when I teach my serial offender course. So many of these serial offenders, you know, killers, John Wayne Gacy, Gary Ridgway, Albert Fish, and I could go on, have substantial abuse and physical and sexual abuse in their, you know, histories. So unfortunately, that seems to be, I think, what happened here. But now I really want to turn to the system. And this is a very interesting topic for me in this case, because Lori herself said it's not about justice. Remember, for her, it's about being impactful. So while I absolutely commend Lori for finding her own justice and healing, I want to discuss why I don't think the system got this one right. And I think you might want to as well. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I think just reveal some of the issues with our system when somebody who commits that type of crime is out on the streets after six years. And even if he didn't go on to reoffend, which I'm not convinced of that, that is not restorative uh. for the victim. Right. Okay. So you don't think it was restorative for Lori, even though she does feel restored or she does feel that Mm -hmm. she's kind of healed. So I guess it's not through the system, though, that she healed. She found justice in another way, her own justice. I also think when you look at general deterrence, I don't think it serves the purpose of general deterrence because it's sending the message that you can brutalize a child and only serve six years. It's literally the next thing. The next thing I wrote, of course. It usually is. Um, I think, first of all, it's way too lenient for the crime. So we have certain values and goals of our criminal justice system. And one of those values is proportionality. And I value that one very much. Even as someone who can be a retributivist, uh, proportionality is part of retribution. The punishment should fit the crime. And in this case, I don't believe that proportionality was served. And I also wrote down, and I agree, I don't think deterrence was served. So you said general deterrence, and I just want to address that quickly because I wrote specific and general deterrence. Oh, yep, I could see it both ways. So general deterrence means the punishment should deter society, right? Should deter other offenders. So no, I don't believe that was served. And specific deterrence should deter the offender. So a sentence, you know, of six years could very well have not deterred him. As I said, we don't really know what happened to him. It's possible he went on to reoffend. I hope not sincerely. You know, there have been some very famous cases of children who have been abducted, abused, and murdered for whom legislation has been passed. And I think it's relevant here. So I want to talk about a couple of these cases. Do you teach about some of these cases? I happen to cover them in my classes because I cover a lot of crime policy. Yeah, I'm assuming you're going to talk about Megan's Law. Yes. Right. I definitely talk about Megan's Law in my classes, but um, I don't go too much further into those issues. It's not as relevant for the classes I teach. Okay. So yeah, there's Megan Kanka, who was abducted from her home by neighbor Jesse Temendiquas. Megan was sexually assaulted and murdered by him. And Jesse Temendiquas had a previous attempted sexual assault on a child. For this assault, he was given a short prison sentence of less than one year. Um, And so he went on to offend against Megan. He lived, as I said, he was a neighbor. And this was also one of those quintessential cases where we talk about the lure of candy. 
he lured Megan in with, do you want to come visit my puppy? So one of those awful stranger danger cases. He wasn't stranger danger, right? He was known to her? He was a neighbor? He was a neighbor, but not not really known to her, much of an acquaintance. I oh, still okay. would put it in the stranger danger mm-hmm. category. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you can imagine, her family and the neighborhood, the community was outraged after. And when people are outraged, there's an emotional knee-jerk reaction because we want to do something. And the reaction to this violent crime against Megan um, and her family was that Megan's law was passed. As you may know, uh, Megan's law was passed in a very short time, only 90 days, which is very quick for this type of legislation. And Megan's law was the requirement that sex offenders register their information with the local police department. But that already existed, registration laws. What Megan's law really did was further that and said that or made it a requirement that the police notify the public that a registered sex offender was living in their neighborhood. So that was Megan's law. Megan's law was taken to the, that this was 1993 that it was passed, but it was also taken to the federal level in 1996. There's just a couple others that I want to describe here because these are the ones that we've heard about as well. Polly Class was abducted at a sleepover at her own home by Richard Allen Davis. Now, Richard Allen Davis was a repeat offender with a lengthy criminal record. This also happened in the early 90s. Uh, Richard Allen Davis sexually assaulted, violently assaulted Polly and murdered her. He was caught immediately, but didn't confess initially. Eventually, he did confess and lead the authorities to her body. The reason I mentioned this case as well is because this case was the reason that three strikes laws were passed. Three strikes laws essentially say they're aimed at deterring repeat and criminal career offenders. Essentially, what it means is if you commit a third strike or a third felony, you're out. You're going to serve a prison sentence of 25 years to life, no matter what the crime is. Now, three strikes laws got complicated because some states started using misdemeanors as those third strikes. So, you know, a theft would result in a a lifetime uh, sentence. So they've become very complicated and aren't used as often as you might think. Finally, I want to discuss Amber Hagerman. I mentioned uh, Amber Alerts in the beginning here. So Amber Hagerman was abducted, raped, and murdered in 1996 by a stranger who was never caught. She was riding her bike in her neighborhood. Other kids had been riding around, um, and a neighbor, an older neighbor, witnessed a stranger stop his truck, grab Amber off of her bike, throw her in his truck, and speed away. There was very little information. Unfortunately, Amber's body was found a couple of days later. Her mother was instrumental in lobbying for Amber Alerts, which is that statewide and and sometimes nationwide alert that goes out to let the community know um, that a child's been abducted and any information that they can provide, usually which is information about the abductor's vehicle. The thought here is that people could get away sooner if we couldn't, you know, they could get over state lines if we couldn't get the information out to the public. So I think Amber Alerts are instrumental in actually saving a number of children, and there's documented statistics on that. So the reason I brought up these cases is that the offenders are very similar, I think, to the offender in this case. They're the stranger predator abusers who kill, and they are arguably the worst offenders. But the legislation has also that has been passed by these cases is how we know them, right? You said immediately, Megan Kanka, you know, Adam Walsh, I bet, you know, um, Polly Class. Mm -hmm. We know them for the legislation. And I think that's the reason. 
that we don't know Lori's case. You had asked in the beginning, why don't we know it? I think it's because there was no legislation that resulted from Lori's case. Mm -hmm. You know what? It reminds me a little bit of um, Jennifer Shewitt that covered that case not long ago. And she was also the victim of a horrendous violent act and, you know, she went on to do incredible things. And, you know, her story, similarly, just a story of resiliency and hope. And it's these stories are so tragic. But when there's something good that comes out of it, the story just means so much more. Yeah. In, in this case, Lori Poland inspired me in ways, you know, that I can't I couldn't even believe in watching her and, and in her message of being impactful and healing in different ways. That was important for me to hear as well, because you know I'm a person who favors more punishment, but I was glad to hear it wasn't punishment that did it for her. I just want to point out, lastly, also the reason I brought up these uh, the legislation that's been passed is, again, the emotions are very high when a child is abducted, assaulted, and murdered, but that doesn't always make the legislation past effective. And I, I only want to point that out because it's a reality that we deal with. I'll give the example of Megan's law. Megan's law makes sense and should be used for certain offenders to, you know, make the community aware. However, when we look at the research that's been accumulated on Megan's law, sadly, it hasn't proved effective in reducing sexual assaults. And there are many reasons why, you know, there's so many offenders on there now, uh, you know, kind of like they cast the, the net too wide. People don't check them. There's any number of reasons why. And you can find that in the literature. But the reason I also point that out is because what I've observed with so many of these cases is that the offenders had serious criminal histories, but were released way too soon from prison. And I think that is the real root cause of some of these problems was simply that they were not dealt with properly in the first place. And therefore, this legislation is passed. And some of it is effective. Uh, again, I'm a strong proponent of Amber Alerts. I think they are. I think it's a wonderful legislation that's been passed. Um, and I also add, do support parts of Megan's law and other legislation, but I would like to see it refined to make it more effective, because I think that's the most important thing. Not that we send a message, but that we make it so that it works. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if Robert Paul Theoret offended again, and it's possible that he did. But what we do know is that Lori is whole and she's at peace with her life and she serves as an inspiration to so many of us. So I'd like to thank our listeners who suggested Lori's case. And I'd like to thank Lori, who so bravely shares her story with others to help and to heal and to be impactful. If our listeners are interested in learning more about Lori's work with NCAN, you can check out their website at endcan.org. That's E-N-D-C-A-N dot org. I'd like to thank again the listener who suggested this case and everyone who joined us today. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include NCAN 
an episode of Unseen, a Today segment with Megyn Kelly, and Denver 7 News. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.